Good morning. And thank you for joining us at East Shore Baptist Church today. The question I have for you today is, is there life after death? Or do you believe that there is life after death? And what will that be like? Will it be just like our life here, but a little better? Uh, will we know our loved ones when we're there? And how do we know the answers to those questions about what it will be like? Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we could possibly want to know about what comes after this. But in the passage we're looking at today, which is Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, Jesus is going to teach us about the God of the living, the one who will take us there. In this passage, Jesus is actually having a debate with people who do not believe that there is life after death. But through Christ's teaching, we're going to learn that we shouldn't think about eternity in an earthly way. Rather, we should think about eternal life by looking at God's word and by trusting in the power of God. And if we do that, what we'll discover is that heaven will be better than we can possibly imagine. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to Mark 12, we get verse 18. You can use that blue Bible in the seat in front of you, or we'll also put it up on the screen. And once you are there, I'd ask that if you are able, if you would please stand to honor the reading of God's word, and then follow, follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today, Mark 12. I'm going to be starting in verse 18, so big 12, little 18, and I'm going to read through verse 27. Verse 18 says that, and Sadducees came to him, that's Jesus, and the Sadducees are those who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about eternal life, as we think about the life after this, help us to not think about it in an earthly way, but instead, God, to think about it by your word, by scripture, and to think about it while trusting in your power to make something new 
and wonderful. Lord, teach us that heaven will truly be better than anything else we have ever known. And teach us most of all the way we get there, not through what we do, not through what we say, not through who we are, but through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. May he be the one we believe in and trust. As your word says, may he increase and may I decrease. May we see him in the great salvation he offers so clearly today. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if we're going to think about eternal life, if we're going to understand what eternal life is like, then we cannot think about eternal life in an earthly way. We cannot think about eternal life in an earthly way. That's the problem we're going to see in the first few verses of our passage. If you were here, you'll know that we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're actually jumping into the middle of a long account where Jesus is having a lot of conflict and confrontation with the religious leaders of his day. They're having debate back and forth about authority. Last week, we talked about the government's authority compared to God's authority, but now we're looking at who has eternal authority. Who can decide what eternity will be like? Jesus knew he'd have arguments about this very thing and with these people. And he also knew what was going to happen to him, that he would die and rise again. Back in chapter 8, Jesus taught his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, that's probably who he's talking to now, and the scribes. And he would be killed and after three days rise again. I bring up that passage because we're told that he's talking to the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were a sect, a group within Judaism of the day, who our text tells us did not believe in the resurrection. They were the elites of the day. They were probably the high priest, they controlled the temple, and they cooperated with the Romans who were ruling this area. The reason they cooperated with them is because they kept their money and their position. They had a good life, so they didn't feel guilty for doing that. But they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in a future judgment. The only part of the Bible they followed was the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the books of Moses or the law. And that meant they weren't looking for a Messiah. They weren't looking for someone to come and save them. They were just following the law in order to have the best possible life they could have in the here and now. Because for them, that's all there was and all there was going to be. Now, if you grew up in a church setting, every time I hear Sadducee, my mind jumps to a song that I learned as a kid that was called, I Just Want to Be a Sheep. It was saying, I just want to be a follower of God. And there were other verses talking about other leaders in that day. One group is the Pharisees, and the song went, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. And the Sadducees, the verse was, I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. Sad, you see. They're so sad, they don't believe in eternal life. That's what I think of every time I hear this song. They, they didn't think about the future. Their focus was on the here and now. And so the song says they're sad. They probably weren't sad because they were wealthy. They were enjoying life there because they didn't look forward to anything to come. 
But since they didn't believe in a future resurrection, they didn't like this Jesus guy because he talked about a resurrection. And he talked a lot about a judgment that was going to come after death. So they didn't like Jesus and they didn't like his disciples either. After Jesus dies, look what they say to two of his disciples, Peter and John. Peter and John were speaking to the people and the priests, the captain of the temple, and here they are again, the Sadducees came upon them. They're greatly annoyed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They didn't like they were talking about Jesus, and they especially didn't like they were talking about resurrection from the dead. And so here they are. They come up to Jesus, and they don't believe in the resurrection, but to prove how foolish Jesus is, they present a hypothetical scenario to him of this one woman who marries seven different brothers that never have any kids, and so whose wife is she going to be? Perhaps this story is based off of something in the Apocrypha, but regardless, they're speaking about a particular law from the Old Testament. And when scholars talk about this law, they call it leveret, which just means brother-in-law marriage. The Old Testament said that if a woman was childless, then when her husband died, then if he had a brother, the brother was supposed to marry her. And there were two reasons for that. One was to take care of her, because in this day and age, it was difficult for a single woman to provide for herself. So that was one reason. And the other reason was to produce heirs that would continue the family legacy. The book of Deuteronomy is where we find it. This is from that Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 25.5 says, if brothers dwell together, if one of them dies, has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger, but her husband's brother shall go in, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. That's the way it worked then. We actually see this twice in the Old Testament. If we go to the book of Genesis, there's somebody who was supposed to do that and doesn't, and he's condemned for it in Genesis 38. And if we go to the book of Ruth, we see someone who does do this and is praised for it in Ruth chapter 4. That was a command. That's not a command that I would say carries over to today, but that's what they're talking about right now. And when the Sadducees look at this, they assume some tension between this command and the idea of a resurrection. Because if there's a resurrection, then whose wife is this woman supposed to be? If she had two husbands, who would she be married to? And so they create this scenario where there's seven husbands here to make it even more absurd. I imagine this was probably like their viral argument of the day. If they had social media, this would be the thing they would post, or they'd have a TikTok with somebody telling this little story here and about how foolish it is to believe in the resurrection. But the problem here is that the Sadducees are just thinking about eternity in an earthly way. They think if there's a life after death, it would look the same as life does here, and so everybody should be married to someone, so what does that look like? in eternity. They're trying to fit God into their perspective. Instead, they should have been looking at all of God's word. They should have seen where God spoke about a resurrection, and they should have been relying on his power for him to do more than they could possibly expect. Now, before we dive into Jesus's response, I think there's a small lesson here about when we have a conversation with a non-believer or someone who doesn't know God. Oftentimes, if we're talking to somebody who's hostile to faith, they love to pick at little things and, and steer into details about heaven or eternity or the Bible and have a debate there. 
And don't mishear what I'm going to say because there are answers to all of those questions. But when we're talking to someone like that, it's not often helpful to focus on those little things. If it's a genuine matter of concern, you could say, well, I'll find the answer to that and get back to you. But more often than not, we should direct the focus back where it belongs, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one that we should focus on. But let's see what Jesus does here. How can we listen to Jesus and how can we understand what eternal life will be like? Well, Jesus points to two things we should think about. He says, if we want to think about eternal life, we should do so through Scripture and by thinking about the power of God. We should think about Scripture and the power of God. As verse 24 says, Jesus says, you Sadducees, you are wrong, you are mistaken, you are deceived, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. You do not understand what the Bible is saying. You do not trust God's power. So he says that in verse 24, and then he unpacks that in the next couple verses. In verse 25, he speaks about God's power, and in verses 26 and 27, he'll talk more about Scripture. So we're going to change the order up, and we're going to look at that Scripture part first and look at verses 26 and 27, which tells us that if we're going to understand eternity, then we should know Scripture. We should know Scripture. Friends, this book is God speaking to us. It comes from him. If we want to know what God thinks about something, then we should read and know his word. That's not opposed to trusting in God's power. Scripture is not inconsistent with that. It tells us in this book about Jesus's resurrection. Where else could we see the power of God in a greater way? He has power over death. He has the final word. But God has given us this book so we can know him. We can know about his character. We can know about what he is like. We don't have to guess. We don't have to stumble through life, but we can know what God is like. He has spoken to us. He has told us how he works in this world. And if we look at this book, in Jesus' day, they would have just had the Old Testament, but there are Old Testament passages that clearly teach a resurrection, that there is life after death. Here's just two of them. One is Isaiah 26. The prophet says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. It's not a zombie thing. He says a joy. It's a good thing. You are being raised to new life. Or you could look at Psalm 73. The psalmist says, God, now you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, afterward, after I die, you will receive me to glory. The rest of the Old Testament is very clear about a resurrection. But, and that should have been enough. But Jesus knows that these people, they don't listen to those other passages of Scripture. So he goes to the Scripture they do accept to prove his point. Even by playing their game, he can show that there is a resurrection. So he says in verse 26, he says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? And I remind you, he's talking to probably the high priest or the representatives of him, the leaders of the faith. He is saying, have you read this book that you teach other people? Have you not read this passage? He's being very bold, but he's saying the reason you're confused about this is because you, leaders of the faith, have misunderstood God's word. You have misinterpreted what God has said. 
And that's if we're going to understand eternity, we have to be careful that we do not misinterpret God's word. One scholar, Danny Aiken, said, misinterpreting the scriptures inevitably, it always leads to a distorted view of God. When we misunderstand God's word, it means that our God becomes too small and impotent or powerless to be the God of the Bible. When we misunderstand the Bible, we make God too small. Or perhaps to put it more simply, uh, Pastor R.C. Sproul once said that 100% of our theological errors, our errors about who God is, 100% of them happen because we do not know the scriptures. The reason we make a mistake is because we do not know God's word. So rather than live in error and ignorance, we should seek to know God. He's communicated to us through this book. Friends, if you ever said, oh, I want to hear God speaking to me, then I have good news for you. Pick up this book and read. God has spoken to us. If we want to know what he says, we should ask for his help. We told the kids over and over this week, (laughs) this passage of scripture, Psalm 25, 4, God, make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. The way we understand who God is, what eternity is like, is by dedicating time to this book. I would say ideally every day, reading it, thinking about it, memorizing it, listening to others share about it. If we know scripture, then we know God. Okay, but what was it that these men were specifically misunderstanding from their scriptures? Well, they misunderstood who God is. So Jesus goes to one of their books, one of those first five books. It's actually the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 6. And this is a scene where Moses, the great leader of God's people, he encounters the presence of God. He's walking in wilderness and he sees a bush that is burning, but the bush is not being burned up. And in this passage, then God says something to him. And from this, Jesus learns something or he teaches us something. And this always struck me as pretty um, challenging because we see that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is someone who cares about grammar. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus cares about grammar. Yes, your English teacher was right. You should have paid more attention in class because Jesus cares about grammar. Look what he says here. He's talking to Moses long after these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died. And he says, Uh, Jesus says, have you not read how God spoke to him saying, I am, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not past tense, present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is looking at that in our English translation. It's one word there, am. He's looking at that one word, one verb. He says, that means that they're still alive. If God says that he is their God right now, then they must still be alive. His covenant, his special relationship with them has not been broken by death. God says, I am their God. Another pastor recently passed, Tim Keller wrote this, notice Jesus does not hang the hope of life after death on the idea of an immortal part of us. He's saying, if I asked you, do our, our souls, do we live forever? You could say, yes, uh, our, our souls li- live forever, yes. But that's not how Jesus proves it. 
He doesn't look at us people. He instead looks at God. As Keller says, rather, he rests the idea of immortality on the commitment of God to us, on the fact that God says, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. In other words, we have a God who cannot at our death scrap that which is precious to him. The reason we know we live forever is because God cares about us. He loves us. He says, I am their God. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob continue to exist. They continue to enjoy the blessings of a relationship with God. Now you may say, well, is this just something Jesus is making up here? No, other parts of the Bible talk about how they understood that they would have this type of relationship with God. We go to the book of Hebrews. It tells us about these same men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they died in the faith. They did not receive everything God promised them, but they, see, they saw them having seen them and greeted them from afar. They acknowledged, we're just strangers and exiles on earth. As it is, the author says, they desire a better country, a, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. That's how the author of Hebrews says it. Jesus is conveying to these men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they are enjoying that heavenly country right now. And friends, if we know God through Jesus Christ, then that's the future that waits for us too. We can have confidence that that is where we are heading as well. The Apostle Paul says clearly that God raised the Lord. He will also raise us up by his power. And Jesus is the one who provides this to us. He was raised to life, and so we can be too, only through him. In John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this. Jesus gives eternal life to those who turn from sin and believe, trust in him. And if that's happened, if we've turned away from sin, put sin behind and said, God, our, my faith and trust is in you, then even death cannot separate us from God. Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If we look at this whole book, we can see that there is a resurrection from the dead. It's a wonderful reality. Now, Jesus doesn't talk about this here, but if there is a resurrection... And there's also a challenging side of that because that means there's also a judgment to come. There's some determination about what that eternity looks like. So yes, our sin separates us from God and it's only through faith and trust in Jesus that we can be kept safe and secure for eternity. That's why it's important that we know him. That's why it's important that we call out to God, say, God, I, I want to leave sin behind. I want to know you and have a relationship with you. It's important we seek him and know him today as soon as possible to call out to him. If we know him, if we know God through Jesus, if we know him through his word, then we can think about life by trusting in the good power of God. 
If we know God, if we're looking at his word, then we can move to a place where we trust God's power when we think about eternity. When Jesus speaks about the power of God in this passage, he's talking about how God can create something new. He can create a more wonderful world than we can imagine. Jesus is reminding these men that it's not just the natural forces of this world that control our lives. God is over them all. He's saying, you Sadducees have wrongly assumed that things are going to be the same, exactly the same as they are now there. Specifically, he says, you're assuming there's going to be marriage in heaven, but Jesus challenges that. Look what he says in verse 25. He says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. I think there's some helpful clarification in Luke's account of this. So in the Gospel of Luke, it's the same story, and this is how he writes it. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. And he tells us why. Because they cannot die anymore. In that way, they're equal to angels. They're sons of God. They are sons of the resurrection. So in other words, Jesus is saying that in heaven, our relationships will be like relationships angels have. But I want you to look at our passage in verse 25. It's very clear about this. It says we are, will be like angels, like angels. It doesn't mean we will be angels. No, it says we will be like them, perfect as they are, eternal as they are. This is a very popular misconception. When some people think about eternity, people often describe someone dying as, oh, there's another angel in heaven, or that old cartoons, it was always the animal went up and got little wings and a halo and a harp thing. that's, That's the image we have in our mind. But the Bible never says that anywhere. We are not. We will never be angels. Angels are something different. When we die, we're still ourselves. We're still perfectly human. The way we're similar to angels, like angels, is that we will not marry. We will not have sexual relations, and we will not die. The reason is because we will be changed. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, It will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body put on immortality. So let's let's try to unpack this some more because let's, let's try to look at what the Bible actually says about what it will look like in heaven. It doesn't answer every question that we may have. I can't tell you exactly what it's like. I can't show you pictures. We'll have many questions that will go unanswered until we get there. But what we can do is trust that heaven will be better. We can trust that heaven will be better than what we know here. It'll be better. Some things will be the same as they are here, but they'll be in a better way. For example, we know from scripture that we will still be ourselves in heaven. Some views of eternity are we kind of like absorbed into a larger consciousness or or something like that. No, the Bible says we will be ourselves. We'll still be uh, male and female. Our individualness will be preserved. It will just be in this new perfect reality. And the good news in that means that we will know people in heaven. We will recognize 
people in heaven. In fact, Scripture conveys they'll be even more recognizable. We'll see each other as we really are. We'll clearly see the best of one another. I know this because if we go back in the Gospel of Mark, you may remember in Mark chapter 9, we talked about a time when Jesus showed his glory to his disciples. He was transfigured before them. And look at the way it's described. Jesus is changed and two people come from heaven to talk to him. It says there appeared to them Elijah, Old Testament prophet, and Moses, the great leader. They were talking with Jesus. And Jesus' disciple Peter says, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and Elijah. Somehow Peter knows and recognizes these men who died hundreds of years before he was alive. There's something in them that he can see, oh yes, that's Moses, that's Elijah. In eternity, we will be ourselves, but better. We will be who God created us to be. So that will be the same, but better. But in our text, Jesus tells us some things are going to be different. The thing he particularly focuses on is, is sex, sexual relations. He says that there will not be sex in heaven. But he gives us the why. Why? Well, because in eternity, no one dies. There's no need to make more people because... No one's going to die ever again. The book of Revelation tells us that God, he will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's no sex because there's no more death. And this is where we need to be clear what scripture teaches, because there's other faiths that teach a different perspective of eternity. They say that there is marriage. There still is this reproduction there. Certain strands of Islam, and especially Mormonism, are very big on you need to be married and making children in eternity. But I think Jesus would say that's too high a view of earthly marriage. You've made earthly marriage too important. Because a bigger reason why there's no sex in heaven is because marriage here on earth is just a picture of the union Jesus has with his church his people. Marriage is a picture of the union we have. Paul writes about this in Ephesians. He quotes the Old Testament passage about marriage, which says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is what Paul says. This mystery is profound. I am saying that this, that verse refers to Christ and the church. If we know Jesus, if we have faith in him, then when we are in heaven, we are united to him. Marriages here are just picturing this coming wedding, this coming uniting between Jesus and his people. And so once we're there, we don't need that picture anymore. We don't need someone else to help us get through life because we are with Jesus. We will be enjoying eternal life. Now, don't misunderstand me. While we're here on, on earth, Marriage, sex, these are good, wonderful gifts that God gives, but they are unnecessary in eternity. There's no sex in heaven because there is something better, a perfect relationship with Jesus and with one another. Now, I say that, but if that doesn't sound better to you, then that's probably because you're struggling to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is perfect. He's the one who truly, completely, fully satisfies all our desires, what we really need. He's the one that we 
were made for. And just because there's no sex or marriage, that doesn't mean we're, we're separated from the people we love. No, there's true godly intimacy. I was reflecting on it, and I think a good way to communicate it is the closeness we have with those who know God now, that's not lost in eternity. It's just perfected. Now, I know that if you are very in love with your spouse, the idea of I'm not going to be married to them in eternity, I know that sounds really terrible. Trust me, I understand that. But that's a small view of heaven because there we'll be perfect. We'll be even more lovable, even more capable of love, even more loved there than we are here. Your loved one you're married to, you won't miss them in eternity. If they are also a believer, you will be with them in eternity. It will just be different. It will be a better way, a way without sin. Your joy and love will be more, not less. You'll have deeper relationships there than you could possibly have here on earth. Heaven is a place of pleasure beyond imagination. Our world messes this up. They say the best pleasure you can have now is sex, but that's just, that's just not true. Scripture says that this sexual pleasure we have now will be transformed into something so much better in eternity. Danny Aiken put it this way, no one will be disappointed in any way when they get to heaven. No one will be deprived of one thing that's necessary for them to have maximum joy optimal happiness, and complete satisfaction. He goes on, our relationship with Jesus and with all our brothers and sisters will be so intense, so filled with love and affection that all earthly bliss will seem shallow and small in comparison. That's the eternity, not something lost, but something gained. Think about it this way, even if you're very, very in love, with someone. You still have misunderstandings. There's still times that your own sin and selfishness comes in. There's still brokenness and arguments. There's still pain from loneliness when you're separated or, or pain that, that comes when, when you have an argument or discussion, you're not talking for, for a little bit. All that pain, brokenness, misunderstanding, all of that is gone. And it's gone forever. No anxiety, and worry, but perfect happiness forever. All of that from the power of God. Pastor Sproul said, if you use your imagination, you try to think of the greatest possible experience that you will have in heaven, and then multiply that joy you feel by a million times, you still will not have begun to appreciate what God is preparing for his people in heaven. Think of that greatest experience. Maybe it's the, the time when you felt most in love with someone. If you're married, maybe it was your, your wedding night or, or the first few days after in, in the honeymoon or a time when you just felt so close. Or, or take it out of that realm. Think of the best birthday you've ever experienced. You have the most friends and family around. The happiest Christmas watching the Eagles win the Super Bowl, or whatever that experience is for you, how you put it together, whatever that is, none of them, none of them compare to one second, one second in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Paul writes, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart 
of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's what's there. But Paul does bring up something that's, or not Paul, Jesus in our text brings up something interesting. He does say that there will not be marriage. And so how should we think about that? If that's the eternity, that wonderful eternity is where we're headed, how do we think about marriage in the here and now? Well, I'll I'll talk to two groups I hope cover everyone here. One is if you're married, if you're married now, or you're about to be married, it's just about to come very soon, what should we do? Well, please enjoy that relationship. Enjoy that, that closeness. But remember that your marriage is a picture. It points to something greater. It's a picture of what it will look like when every believer is united to Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to belittle it. Your marriage should be your most important human relationship on this earth, but it shouldn't be your most important relationship. Your most important human relationship, yes, but not your most important relationship. That's the relationship you have with God. Because someday you will be with Jesus. And if you know him, someday you'll see that marriage I had, as wonderful as it was, it was just a preview of this true relationship to come. And so if you're married, remind each other of that, that we are picturing what it will be like to be with Jesus. Love each other well, love each other sacrificially, but live your lives to point to Jesus Christ. But what if you're not married, or, uh, or you were and now you're not, or, or you're at a place where marriage just seems far off, you don't think it's, it's coming or it's going to happen, then I would tell you, remember that marriage is temporary. Remember that marriage is temporary. As wonderful as your marriage may have been, or as wonderful as the idea of being married to someone who loves you seems, it is only temporary. Marriage may be something that helps you in this life, but it will not complete you. That's something only Jesus can do. And perhaps you're at a place where maybe you lost a spouse or uh, you're at a place where you just don't think it's going to happen, that you're just not going to be married. Let me assure you that God has not forgotten you. It's possible that you may be married again, but even better, Even better, if you know Jesus, you have the ability to have the type of intimate relationships you will enjoy in eternity right now. This was something we talked about when we were back in Mark chapter 10. Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands, no one who leaves things for my sake and the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, persecutions, in the age to come, eternal life. I unpacked that a lot more a few weeks ago. Here I'm focusing on that if you are not married now, you can still have the joy of intimacy in relationships. That's something Jesus has promised his people through his connection with brothers and sisters in Christ. You can find love, joy, friendship, God-honoring intimacy with a church family. If you don't have a church family, I think this is a wonderful one, but get connected with brothers and sisters in Christ. You can know that level of connection and love. You say, well, I'm, I'm in this church, or, or I'm, I'm just not experiencing that. Well, then, then ask God. Look at this passage. Say, God, you've promised that we'll feel 
that'll feel this connection. Ask him to send to you brothers and sisters in Christ who will show love to you. In the meantime, be one who loves their brothers and sisters like Jesus. Serve others, put their interest before your own, even especially when it's hard to do so. Give other believers a taste of what it will be like to be with Jesus, to be truly loved by our Lord and Savior. Because in Jesus, we can know joy now and we can know the eternal joy that waits us in heaven. Will you be there? Will you be there? If you reject earthly thinking, if you know scripture, if you trust in the power of God, then you can know the way to get there. The God of the living who kept his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he keeps his promises still to those who know him, to those who have a relationship with him. Through faith and trust in him, he has made it possible for us to experience that heaven of infinite joy. If you do not know him, then turn to him. Trust him. Heaven will be better because we will be with Jesus and he alone is worthy.